This week's reading for the fifth Sunday of Lent comes out of John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She brought it, or she bought it, so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, folks, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. If I think back a long ways, all the way back to 1990, I remember watching a classic movie. stars Macaulay Culkin. The movie is Home Alone. I think this has been a very, very popular movie over the years. Many people have seen it. And there are many iconic images from that. But for me, what stands out the most in my head is a moment fairly early in the movie when young Macaulay Culkin, or Kevin McAllister is his character name, is standing in front of the mirror. He's taking a shower. He's getting himself ready. He's, he's narrating to himself, talking to himself about what his day is going to look like. And as he's doing different things, he sprays on some deodorant. And then pretty soon, he pours out a little bit of aftershave, even though the kid's like 10 years old eight or nine or something like that, however old he is, and he slaps it on his cheeks and the burn sets in and, oh! I think at one point or another, every single one of us goes through that same type of thing. I know I did. It makes me think back to my junior high days when inevitably one of the guys from my class after PE, when we were all in the locker room, they would pull out a bottle of Brute aftershave. I don't even know if they still make Brute anymore. Maybe they do. But I just remember it as being this very, very potent smell. And we would all like, okay, you got to put your Brute on. So we would all pour out some Brute and we would put it on too. And even though we hadn't shaved because we were in junior high, we would feel that burn and then the smell would be there. And I can only imagine how much our teachers the next period loved all of us guys coming and smelling like Brute. Fast forward a little bit more. And as I did get a little bit older, I got to the point where I would wear aftershave, even though I didn't shave very often, I, thinking back to my college days. And eventually I would get, I would go on to buy preferred stock. That was my aftershave of choice. I don't even know if they make preferred stock anymore. Full disclosure, I haven't worn aftershave in years, folks. But at that time, that's what I, I had. And I can remember back to my junior year of college when my roommate and I, one night we were getting ready to go out. It was probably a weekend. And, and like most young people in college, we were perhaps hoping to, to meet someone. And, and so we were all, or both of us were trying to get ourselves looking nice. And so I went to, to put on some of my preferred stock aftershave. And I was about ready to do it and my roommate said, what are you doing? That's not what you do. You don't just slap it on your cheeks. That's insufficient. This is what you do. And he grabbed his bottle of cologne, and I don't remember what cologne it was, but he says, this is the technique. Spray, spray, step through it, and wipe it down. I looked at him like he was a moron. 
But I do remember when we both went through this cologne technique that yes, it rested on our, our, on our clothes and we could smell it. So we would smell nice when we went out. That idea is all over our passage for tonight. This idea of smells, of aromas, of colognes, or in this case, perfume. Now, full disclosure, that bottle of preferred stock that I mentioned, it was like a five ounce bottle and it lasted me so long. I had that for so many years because it takes so very little that by the time I finally finished that bottle and threw it out so many years after I had bought it, it probably didn't even smell the same as it originally had when I got it. A little bit will do you, won't it, when it comes to smells, when it comes to aromas. And that's something that's important to recognize. Studies have shown, or they have at least indicated, that of all of our senses, of uh, our different senses, smell is the one that is most closely connected with memory. And perhaps you've noticed this. I think we all have those different aromas, those different smells that instantly trigger us in one thing. Clearly, some 20 plus years after that event, I can still remember the smell that was on my clothes when we went spray, spray, step, wipe, <laughs> to give me that weird, weird cologne smell. But I can also remember the smell of fresh cut alfalfa or in a hay field takes me back to my days on the farm. The smell of fresh cut grass reminds me of my days working on golf courses in my younger days different smells that I have of food that can remind me of, of my grandparents' house or my parents' house. Or even just this past week as I, on, a, on Wednesday night, when I stood up here in the, the part, upper part of the church getting ready for the evening activities and I could smell the good food smells coming up from downstairs as they were preparing supper and it just reminded me of the time of fellowship. Smell, aroma will do that. Now, in our story for today, we have the presence of aroma. And we hear, we, we hear about this enormous amount of perfume that is used to anoint the feet of Jesus. Now, I can only imagine when she takes a pound, a pound of perfume and pours it all over his feet. We hear that the aroma fills the house. It must have been overpowering for the people in that house in that moment. But let's back up just a little bit and think about this story on the larger scale. We hear this story called the anointing of Jesus. Now, this is one of those stories that's important enough in the, the story of Jesus that it is featured in all four Gospels. All four Gospels feature this story, but as per usual, in that situation, they have different details. The setting is just a little bit different. The timing is just a little bit different. The, the identity of the woman is a little bit different in the different accounts. Now here in John's gospel, we hear that it's Mary, the sister of Lazarus, whom Jesus has raised from the dead, which incidentally had just happened like in the previous chapter, though some time has gone by. We hear that it's six days before the Passover. It's placed right before his triumphal entry. In fact, the evening before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which will spark off the events of Holy Week. That's the setting here. The different, but one of the other Gospels, Luke actually places this event way earlier in the whole overarching story. 
Mark and Matthew, they both place it also in the same town of Bethany or the same community of Bethany, but it's someone else's house, and the woman isn't identified. We have all kinds of these little differences. Sometimes she anoints his head. Here she anoints his feet, but it's this wonderful moment in the midst of what seems to be a moment of relaxation for Jesus. I think Jesus knows fully what's about to happen, what he's about to embark on when he enters into the city and he'll spend several days and the tension continues to grow before his eventual arrest and his betrayal and his crucifixion and his death. All of that is pending and I think Jesus knows it, but he's taking this moment to spend time in the home of a family that he is very fond of. In fact, we hear of a great love that lies between Jesus and these three siblings, Lazarus, the brother, and the sisters, Mary and Martha. We hear their names quite often. They pop up in all of the different gospels at different times, but we hear of this moment and his disciples seem to be there. In the very least, we hear that Judas is there. And in the midst of this, Mary comes in with this bottle of extravagantly expensive perfume, a pound of it, and she pours it all over his feet. And then in what could only be called a very intimate action, she wipes his feet clean, not with a towel, not with a cloth, not with a part of her robe, but with her hair. Now, this would have broken all kinds of social decorum at the time, but it doesn't seem like she cares. All we can extrapolate from this moment is this, this, this connection, this relationship, this, this love that exists between individuals, and she is recognizing that. Now, different scholars may say that there's a lot of different things going on here, but maybe all we need to realize is that she has this moment. But then we have Judas. And we hear that Judas begins to squawk about this situation. Now, when I think about that, I'm reminded of something that today as I'm recording this just happened yesterday. Now, overnight, Wednesday night into Thursday morning, we got one of those very strange little micro snowstorms that came through here in the early spring just enough to sort of accumulate a little bit of snow in, in the grass. And then as soon as the sun got up, it really began to dissipate quickly. But yesterday morning, everybody else had left my house. I was home by myself and I was in the kitchen. I was actually emptying the dishwasher when all of a sudden I saw a car come swinging back in outside the window. And my son who had left for school apparently needed to get something that he had forgotten. And I saw him get out of the car and he didn't go on the sidewalk, which was already clear as snow. He went right through the grass and I knew that his feet and his shoes were gonna be covered in snow. Now, here's what I know about my son. When he's in a hurry for something like that, he's not gonna stop and take his shoes off. And I didn't want him tracking across the floor. So the second he came in that door that was just a few feet away from me, I turned and I looked at him and I said, don't you go across that floor with your wet shoes, take your shoes off. And he was like, dude, why so hostile? No, I didn't intend to be hostile. I was just trying to get his attention before he went on through there. And we had a good laugh about it and it was over and done with. But I kind of found myself thinking that maybe just maybe that same sensibility is present there with Judas when he says, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii, which is like basically a year's wages, if you're wondering. Why wasn't it sold in the money given to the poor? We can make the argument, and maybe Jesus even made the argument, dude, why so hostile? Now we hear in the narration, Judas didn't really care about the poor. It's because he carried the common purse and he had some sticky fingers and he liked to help himself to what was in there. So he was hoping to gain something from this in the long run. But what Jesus seems to push back against Judas is not so much like saying, you don't care about the poor. It's like, 
Just let it be, dude. She's prepared me for my burial. You will always have the poor. You will not always have me. Folks, that's the story. That's what happens in this short passage. And here's the thing. Typically, week after week after week, as I'm working with these texts, as I'm thinking about these messages, as I'm wanting to kind of unpack things, I always have the tendency to tell either you or the folks that are sitting here in the sanctuary, don't just take things at face value. Let's peel back a layer and see what lies underneath. And let's peel back another layer and see what lies underneath. Let's continue to dig as we find things to connect with, things to hold on to. But as I worked with the text this week, as I worked with the story and I thought about it and I tried to peel back layers, something in the back of my head, and who knows, maybe this was the Holy Spirit just smacking me around a little bit, said to me, don't dig. What lies on the surface? What is blatantly apparent that maybe we're skipping over? And I think it lies in that statement that Jesus makes in response to Judas. She is preparing me for the day of my burial. I'm pretty sure Jesus knows what's about to happen. And in fact, in the other Gospels, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, we have events where Jesus predicts what's going to happen. We call them the passion predictions. When he tells his audience, sometimes it's his disciples, sometimes it's a larger group of people, but he tells them three different occasions He says, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be tortured, I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to rise again. Three times he predicts it. Here in John's gospel, that doesn't happen. And this is really the first time when Jesus gives us any sort of hint as to what is coming up. She has prepared me for the day of my burial, a.k.a. I'm going to die, people. I don't know if they caught it or not. We are not given that in this story. We're not given that detail, but this wonderful moment happens, this moment that Jesus does not want to interrupt, this moment where he is simply enjoying the connection and the relationship that he has with this individual as he's simultaneously also sharing the time with everybody else who's at that table, just sharing the time together And maybe, just maybe, he's reminding us that those moments, those moments of connection, basically every moment in life is fleeting. The really, really good stuff is wonderful, but it doesn't last. And the really, really hard stuff can be incredibly difficult, but that doesn't last either. Life, our reality, the human experience, whatever we want to call it, is a series of moments that happen one after another after another after another. And perhaps Jesus is encouraging us to be in those moments, to share them with the people that we are with, and to recognize that this is all a part of life, but also acknowledging that life comes to an end. One of the other questions that I always kind of wrestle with, and one of the things that I hope to help people find and hold on to is a glimmer of hope. What gives us hope? What sounds like good news from the passage? And maybe the only thing that we can say is the recognition that Jesus gives us that we are not alone in these moments. And Jesus acknowledges the reality of his death, and in doing so, we also recognize the reality of our death. But the ultimate promise, what Jesus will accomplish through his death and then his subsequent resurrection coming up 
very, very soon within our church year. Is the recognition, is the promise that death doesn't get the last word, even in a world that feels like it does. I hope that we can hold on to that in knowing that Jesus willingly walked this road. Jesus enjoyed the experiences that he had and probably really, really didn't enjoy some of the really rough stuff that would come up in the following week. But that he did all of this willingly so that we might ultimately be with him and that not even death will stand in the way of the intimate relationship that we hold with the one who made us in the first place.